0: Hi, everyone. It's Aviva Romani, and this is Kindred Cast, unfiltered conversations with the business and cultural leaders who shape the world we live in. Kindred Cast is a production of Kindred Media, powered by Lion Tree, the global investment and merchant bank. For more insightful content, including our podcasts, newsletters, and events, and to get in touch with us, search for Kindred Media wherever you're listening to this.
1: hi aria
2: how you doing
1: here we are again start of the year i hope you had a nice holiday and a break though i know you well enough to know that you're always thinking and planning no matter where you are so i'm not sure if you got much of a break but hopefully you did i try right That was nice i want to ask you one question before we got started though and it relates to the shout out at the finale of Succession. So did you know that that was coming? No, it was a
2: a surprise. It was not orchestrated. There was no Machiavellian cameo. It was totally a zeitgeist moment. It was incredible. It was a real treat for us, for everyone at the firm. And I could tell when people watch Succession and who watched the succession, which is a lot of people, and when they watched succession. Yeah. People are still, people I'm still, are still getting emails. Yeah, people yeah. are still pouring in. <laughs> it was really cool. And it was a really cool episode overall from an MA perspective. And the writing was really, really great. I encourage those who have not seen it to definitely check it out, get a glimpse into the world of MA and tech and media coming together. It was really, really fun.
1: Yeah, I think it certainly showcased the pervasiveness of the Lion Tree brand and how far it's come.
2: The, those hard italian pillows that we don't like well a little anecdote i got a nice note last night from cousin greg oh you did yeah <laughs> from nick braun the actor that plays greg who's talked about the lion tree he said actually i'm really happy that you felt that i said it right and you felt that it actually matched the lion tree culture wow And i said yeah you, you really you synced it perfectly i really appreciate it <laughs> <laughs>
1: well it's a good start to the year 2021 was definitely a very busy year for Lion Tree and you had a lot to say in your year end letter. Last year the title of your year end letter was leaving it all behind and we talked a lot about the concept of forward to extraordinary or as you pointed out to me could be read forward to extraordinary which the year certainly turned out to be. This year the overarching theme as you envision is unlocking with purpose. And there's a lot to unpack there. So just to start out, last year was a major milestone year for Liontree. In addition to core M&A, which obviously still remains a core piece of the business, the firm has pivoted into investing, into capital raises, into public market listings, not to mention thematic content. So it's really not a traditional investment bank, which By the way, was one of the key reasons why I joined about six years ago.
2: The number one reason why we started it to not be typical.
1: Right. And now as you think towards that next decade, not just the next year, but the next decade, what is your vision for the firm and how do you plan to unlock with purpose, as you say?
2: Well, I appreciate it. Leslie, I'm glad you did decide to join and that we're doing this together again. It is a highlight for me to be able to bring the letter to life, so to speak, but also to put it in motion and hopefully add some value to people that watch and listen to the podcast and put some insights out there for uh, people to glean from as the year gets started, which will get to uh, hopefully a lot of things around the markets and things that we're transacting around and, and what we're seeing in the marketplace today because it's started off as a pretty volatile beginning of the year. But I think for Liontree, the way that we started is the way that we're approaching really even the second decade, which is that we are mirroring the activities of the entrepreneurs that we do business with. Our job is to project where this economy is going and then to position Liontree to capture and provide those opportunities. Now, that seems like a broad statement. But effectively, what that means is when you say m and I think advisory. So we advise companies in mergers, acquisitions simplifying their companies, expanding their companies for realizing the hopes and dreams of the founders. That is going to be a constant. That's not changing. That's the justification I gave my parents when I said I'm going to get into finance and Wall Street to begin with. And I think that's the reason why uh, we're doing this. It's kind of like what makes it all worthwhile, like uh, making the, the, the pie bigger than you started. We all care so much about what we do here. And you see it in the eyes of the people that we're working with, both inside the walls and outside the walls. And it's also because we do so much in the creative industries and the digital economy. It informs a lot of the culture of our society. I think we all like the fact that we do business in the companies that we all consume their products. That makes it all the more worthwhile because it's so much of the generation that we're part of. I call ourselves like the bridge generation that we grew up without a lot of the mobile phones and the technology and the TikToks. And the fact that we're so comfortable with them now, we're seeing what's to come with AI and the Jetsons and the flying planes and and all that. And so much of that is exciting about being able to form that, but also being very responsible about which ones make it through to the public domain, which ones make it through that you want to actually invest in. It increased levels of concentration, make your bets and then pick the winners and then have a responsibility of that credibility in front of the ultimate constituents of your shareholders and your friends and your family and say, this is an institution that we call Lion Tree that stands for quality. And so that, to me, is all about the purpose of the mission. And at the end of the day, it's not about just capitalism and saying we're here to enrich ourselves and to take from the ecosystem. And then at the end of the day, we've taken out of some pie and left it hollow. It's really about depositing into a broader ecosystem and making it bigger than we started. And then that's what I call unlocking with purpose. You can look at it per industry and say, okay, well, the education industry has to be digitized because everyone's lived through a completely tumultuous education system the last few years, especially that's gone virtual versus physical. And how do you change that? Or you can look at it and do it not just per, per industry, but you can say it, holistically for this $100 trillion economy as it becomes more innovative, what do you do with it? Or are you going to look at it generationally and say, too much concentration has happened in the stock market in our generation, and the new generation is creating a whole new level of assets, and we call those NFTs or unique digital assets, and there's a whole new currency attached to them. And that's basically just a whole new way of looking at stocks for them. And they're basically saying, by the way, you haven't really left us with too much anyway. Because he still has climate dynamics he us with and injustices. And so we want to create all new solutions for that. So like linking generations or looking at things afresh with new perspectives on borders and all of the ways that countries and companies intersect. So I just think perspective shift and our responsibility is to learn and contribute. And if our products are mergers or IPOs or investments, that's great. And they sound like products that other banks have, but we do it in sort of a different way. And I think the fact that the industries are changing so fast, but we're still tried and true to the traditional metrics, we get to just do it a different way and look at things afresh. And because we're a private company, not everyone can look us up and find a lot of information, but they can find out about us through the lens of the companies we work with. And you look at us and say, oh, well, they did that merger or that IPO. Or that investment. And when you look at that entire portfolio, that's the Liontree network of friends and family and entrepreneurs. And we put all those people at the forefront, and we work for each other. And that energy takes us forward, and we'll continue to grow in different ways, and we'll build things together. That's Liontree.
1: Well, let's move on to markets and sector themes. 2021 was yet again another stellar year following 2020, 2019. But as you noted, we're off to a rough start, especially with tech stocks out of the gate. Rates that have been at historic lows have started to tick up. The record government stimulus may not last for much longer. Inflation is now starting to raise its head. There's concerns on that front. So in your mind, will all this lead to trouble in the markets ahead? And more specifically, when you're advising clients, what do you have in mind as this financial backdrop as part of that advice in looking at the year ahead?
2: Okay. So- The letter starts off with the concept of when there's a crisis, routines are broken. And then a choice has to be made of how you're going to choose the rudder that will guide you, and I say purpose, but it really starts with the concept of there's a separation between crisis and routine. Embedded within that is normal life. So a crisis is not normal life. Within a crisis... All kinds of funny, crazy things happen, tragic things happen, and we don't have to repeat all the sadness, but there's a lot of volatility and unnatural things happen. a pull forward of digitization. When I say a pull forward I means a hyper focus on digitization. Everything was virtual. Everything was direct to consumer all the time. But you have a pull forward of digitization or you have, a dynamic at play where there may be things that are not normalized, okay? And I think what we're dealing with right now is a normalization period. 2022 is the beginning of a normalization period. 2021 was not normal, okay? And when I say it's not normal, you think, oh, we were in a crisis. But I say the markets were really strong. But that's also because of things that were benefiting the markets like stimulus and like a tremendous amount of IPO activity that now we're paying the price for. You know, 60% of IPOs and in the industries we focus on, you know, the technology industries, the media industries, telecom industries are below issue price in 2022 already. So we are on the flip side of a kind of overextension of a marketplace in a crisis mode on the positive side, as well as the. The negative side. So we're in a normalization period right now. Okay. We are also in a period where, in the digital economy, we're in an implementation phase of what all this technology and digitization looks like, which then goes to a hybrid world of physical and digital. Like we're here together right now, we're not on a Zoom. So that means that you're okay being physical and virtual together. So we live in Hybrid state, not solely virtual. That's not just normalization. That's like real life. So I think with that, now we're getting get the sea changes back to normal, back to the terms that you were mentioning, inflation. Okay, so yeah, of course you have prices going higher because of the recovery. On one hand, on the other hand, you have massive wage inflation, which in some cases is concerning. And then you have to have the Fed act on that to tighten the marketplace. On the other hand, you could say it's long overdue because. Most of that is affecting the lower parts of the wage economy. Maybe in some cases, those wages should have been going up a long time ago, and now they're correcting very quickly. Four and a half million people voluntarily left their jobs in November. Another four million people voluntarily left their jobs in September, October. It's a massive amount of people. So they were either enriched by stimulus, or they just decided that there are other things they want to do in their life, but work in those jobs. So they could be compelled to come back with a higher wage, or they're going to choose a different lifestyle or somewhere in between. So we have to work those things out. And so the metrics have to shift a little bit. At the same time, normalization, you see the S&P 500 having a PE multiple at around 19 times, with the 10-year treasury around one7 1.8%. That seems like reasonable to me, not too rich. NASDAQ's a little higher, obviously, as it probably would be. So you have things that are going to be normalizing around that. But you know there's a lot of volatility in software and a lot of volatility in tech. A lot of that market behavior last year was very concentrated among a few stocks. You know, It wasn't widespread. There were like five or six stocks that took most of the stock market up. Yeah, right? I think it
1: was. Yeah, five to six took about 35 to 40% yeah. of the, the S&P's return.
2: Yeah. yeah. I'm not meaning to say these things as a calming influence. I'm meaning to say that the market's going to work itself out for a little bit. And within that, There are some really good values, but I don't think we're in panic mode. I think 10-year treasuries at one7 1.8% is not bad. It will go probably higher through the course of the year, but not in an alarmist way. People think the Fed was way behind because of what's been going on with inflation and so on. I think maybe the markets were way ahead. I also think that there's a lot of deflationary pressure still that hasn't seen itself into the system in terms of technology and digitization. We haven't seen those things yet to counterbalance some of that inflation. So I'm not as much of a worrier about long-term inflation as a lot of other people. So I think a lot of these things have to just kind of get worked out over the next few months. And that leads to volatility. Like everything else, our job is to advise companies on how to work through that and also pay attention to its shareholder base along the way, which does, as I said in the letter, lead to a lot of cross-currents and the need for some corporate simplification as a way to make sure that as these companies innovate and spend capital, it may need to divest some assets along the way to be making sure that it respects its shareholders near-term as well as long-term.
1: And as part of that, do you think that the market and investors are going to demand more focus on profitability? And maybe just as a subsequent question, but do you think this will be the year of value stocks Growth has outperformed value in the last 13 of the past 15 years. So do you think we'll see finally a reversal more towards value-oriented stocks and, again, profitability profiles for companies?
2: I think valuations matter a lot, but I don't think the growth phase is over either. I just think it has to be sustainable growth patterns that have more durability attached to them. It goes back to what I said about the IPO market. A lot of companies went public that probably went public too early over the last couple of years. I think there are some issues with our IPO process. When we take companies public or are participating in the IPO advisory process, we try to be very selective with the ones that we're associating with and the ones that we have long-term relationships with before and well after the IPO. But the IPO process has gotten very concentrated among very few underwriters at the top end and very transactional. And it just gets completely heady in terms of having the trend line And the wave, whether it's the SPAC world or traditional IPO process, like I said, too many have come way down very quickly. And that, I think, shines a light on the fact that this IPO process has to be looked at a little bit. But I think at the end of the day, you have to look at the companies that can be public over a long period of time with value creation and growth as well. And we look at all the above, I think, is for the companies that we think will be sustainable. But I think they could be growth-oriented companies as well as value-oriented companies. I don't think there's one or the other.
1: You mentioned SPACs, which was sort of the next topic I was going to tackle here. But when we recorded the podcast this time last year, the SPAC market just came off a very strong Q4. It proceeded to explode in Q1, subsequently slow down in Q2. As we looked through 2021, you did see some recovery in the new issuance market on better terms for investors, but some still challenges in the back end with deal announcements or deal closings. But in the midst of all this dislocation in November, Liontree co-sponsored a SPAC called Infinite with 35 Ventures, which is led by Kevin Durant and uh, Rich Kleiman. And market reception was very strong. It was seven times oversubscribed. So number one, why did you decide to launch the SPAC at this time? What do you think resonated with the SPAC? And how will Infinite differentiate itself against the almost 600 other SPAC sponsors? And unlock value
2: for a company? Masochism. (laughs) 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 No, I I have two siblings and I I always differentiate myself versus my two siblings by saying like, when there's any confrontation, I would run into the confrontation. My sister would run away from it and my brother would suppress it. So I would run (laughs) towards the wave of confrontation of the SPAC market just as it was getting too uh, frothy. I hope they don't mind me saying that. But anyway, look, I think, of course, there are way too many SPACs out there and Now, the vast majority are not going to make it. And obviously, we'll have a hard time finding deals. We see that every single day. And most of the um, SPAC work that we do as a firm are working with the companies on trying to find their rightful home, whether it's M&A, the IPO, or in the event of a SPAC, the right SPAC. And usually, they have SPACs competing with one another to do it because of the supply-demand equation. And most SPACs that are trading below issue price, even after the SPAC finds its target, it trades below And therefore, there's a lot of ARB activity going on and a lot of redemptions happening, et cetera. The rationale for us, one is we see a pipeline of activity all the time in our core business in private. So we can see where the cluster of deal flow is emerging thematically. And if you look at a year ago's letter, we talked about the creator economy as a concept, predictably. And that was based on the platform players, like the YouTubes and the TikToks and the Snap. And others basically emerging and saying, once the platforms are well established, then the creators are going to start to emerge on those platforms. And then not just individually, and there are 20 million creators in the U.S. and 50 million globally, really making money on these platforms. But then you'll see businesses start to emerge in real time that are substantial. And then guess what? A year later, we start to see a lot of those businesses come to us as a bank. And say, you know, these businesses are starting to get ready for prime time, in addition to existing divisions of public companies that have these companies in-house that are ready to be into the public markets. I know and you know what the public investors are looking for, which is what we just said, sustainable long-term growth at a reasonable valuation that they can get behind, which is our incentive to give those public market investors exactly what they're looking for reputationally because we're going to play the long game. And so we were basically saying, we see a lot of those kinds of companies out there. So let's make sure we have a good partner that also stands for the same things with a private market investing track record outside of their core business. Like in this case, it's playing basketball in a different way or it's investing together. And obviously Kevin Durant comes from not just Brooklyn Nets, but the Golden State Warriors where he was in Silicon Valley and he had a lot of exposure with Richard's help to deal flow, et cetera, which I thought was really interesting. And so we saw that dynamic at play and said, we have enough to choose from. We're going to start to be a vehicle for the right thematic cluster. So I think SPACs work where you can target a thematic, where you have the right optionality to deliver to the public markets the right deal flow that will end up solving exactly what it's looking for, which is long-term sustainable growth at a good valuation. Or if you can put together different deals that can merge into each other to then create, and I'm talking about SPACs generally now, not necessarily infinite, but if you can create merged companies together to create a larger company into a SPAC that a SPAC can fill, or you can actually do something more geographically diverse, like the European SPAC market is a lot less frothy than the US SPAC market. And that has not been tapped into yet as much as the US. So, I think you could do different things still with SPACs that can serve its purpose, but the U.S. back market, by and large, as a product, is way overheated still.
1: You did mention at an attractive valuation, as one of the key criteria. Do you feel that target companies' valuation expectations have come down and are more realistic? Because that was where the big disconnect was relative to where public market investors were willing to pay. But Yeah, great
2: question. Depends on the day. A lot of private market valuations are still high versus what the public markets are showing us at least sit here today but the year just started. so I think a lot of people will be patient. I think that disconnect still exists. It all depends on who the sponsors are and whether there's a longer term horizon in terms of knowing what a company and a founder and an entrepreneur and a CEO can do with a public currency, meaning follow-on transactions, what the ultimate goals are. If it's just viewed as a monetization event and you're looking at the public market as your bank, that's problematic. If you're looking at it as a stepping stone on the way to a bigger vision, then you may be a little bit more open to taking a a reasonable valuation and having just a more long-term set of criteria of then being a consolidator and taking advantage of a marketplace today that allows you to get out there at a more reasonable valuation and then having the capital to then go and be a consolidator with other companies at a more reasonable valuation that are public. So you have to kind of have a broader perspective. But to me, it's all about asset construction and putting things together in different ways versus just looking at things in a linear way. Oh, there's a private company. Can we take it public? That's very linear. The way I think about things is, oh, there's a public company that has a division of that company that's private that doesn't necessarily belong. Can that go public and be separable and have now two companies that could thrive that didn't otherwise have that kind of simplification and transparency to shareholders? Now it does. Or... Can these companies come together in different ways to create a more scalable, high-growth model with bottom-line cash flow characteristics, with growth that the market hasn't seen before? And now the market can think about these things differently because you could put those together privately and then show them to the market publicly in ways they hadn't seen before. And it's a more clustered way versus the fragmentation that we've seen over the last year where very... Small early stage companies were going public way too early. By the way, the exact opposite was happening three years ago, which is the highest, largest companies were staying private way too long. Airbnb, Spotify, even Snap, and even Facebook. Remember, those were staying private way too long. And the public market wasn't seeing any product. That was only three or four years ago. So all this is a reaction to what we saw before. And it's going to go backwards and get. Normalized. Right. We're just going to live through that resetting a little bit for a while.
1: Yeah, as you noted, we work with companies both IPO and SPAC, so continue to follow these trends very closely. Maybe moving on to M and A, the market has been red hot, hit record levels last year in terms of the number of deals and deal volumes, which you did predict last year. So kudos to you. And you highlight in your year-end letter that Liontree has its most robust pipeline since inception 10 years ago. Yeah, so broadly, just love to hear some perspectives on where you see that activity really developing this year.
2: By the way, thank you. I take your compliments very seriously because you're discerning. I think I said that we have a robust pipeline, our best pipeline going into 2022, which we're now into and, uh, and so far so good to start this year. But I also said it's going to be more challenging year for m a at the same time, pointing to some of the antitrust or regulatory environments, which is less predictable. Also saying that maybe some of the deal flow will be more kind of the mid-market sized level where you could feel more confidence that they would get done without having to raise the ire of the regulators or even cross-border. These are general comments. I mean, obviously... Uh, I think you're going to start to see elections starting and even in the spring in France. And then you're going to see the midterms in the U.S. And so around the world, you're going to start to see elections play out. And that may change people's view of the regulatory environment. But either way, I think antitrust in many different ways is going to be at the forefront uh, for a while and will inform people's behaviors on the large cap M&A side for a while. But innovations upon us. Scale is important. Simplification is important. spin-offs. Are part of that. The need to change the complexion of business, fixed, mobile, digital, classic, geographically diverse, solving issues as part of MA. All those things are very much upon us. Rates are still relatively low. Sometimes when the IPO market gets more choppy, like it is right now, it puts MA as a product at the forefront even more than it was before. When the companies can't necessarily go public as easily, they are looking at exiting through M&A as as another option. you said companies
1: that went public too early might be left stranded as another. Could be a
2: target, could be reclustered. So nothing is as linear, but the conversations are ongoing all the time. There's definitely an openness to transact and to solve problems and making sure that things are being done right by shareholders. I also think there's a level of angst among shareholders that's rising as well. I always say everyone's a long-term investor as long as things work for the first six months. Maybe that's the first six weeks these days. So there's not a level of patience that you used to see among shareholders. And therefore, you know, CEOs feel that and want to make sure that they're doing the right thing and being valued correctly. That's always topical to make sure that those kind of transactions and that activity is respecting that both near-term and long-term. Because CEOs have a lot of energy to doing the right thing and being innovative and finding growth. And that can be done organically or inorganically. And to do it inorganically, which means through acquisitions, you have to have the right financial flexibility and capital and sometimes that means having to shed some assets to regain other assets. So all that activity is ongoing.
1: You talked about programmatic M&A, maybe you could explain that concept. Yeah.
2: I think that when you're talking about solving something for a company that has M&A or buying an asset as a solution, there may not be like one silver bullet that can solve the whole thing. I always say like if you enter the battlefield of consolidation and you put your weapon down, in the middle of the field, you could get killed. You need to get to the other side. I love your analogies, by
1: the
2: way. So you should really look at doing M&A thoughtfully as a way to get to the other side before you start, almost like a revenue stream. So think about M&A as something that you would normally do as a way of building into a business line that you don't already have versus one big bang at one time. Or maybe if you do one big bang to reset the narrative or reset the asset mix, then what happens after that is the question. And when we start our strategic review or our thinking about a deal, my responsibility is to always look at the end game first before we start. And so I always kind of almost visualize on my desk a blank sheet of paper and kind of move to the end and see how it would play out best you can. Things are unpredictable. And then you start at the beginning once you see it. So I think actually in this letter we cite a McKinsey report that talks about the best returns for companies on M&A has been the programmatic M&A versus the big bang kind of one deal and that's it or no M&A now there are exceptions to everything but I also think it speaks to the fact that like sometimes shareholders reaction to deals at the moment of the deals being announced gets it wrong and it takes some time to digest So people that look for the pop on the deal is also a misnomer because sometimes it takes some while to digest. A lot of times when we announce a deal, the first few days, I'll get phone calls from CEOs around the industry saying that they thought it was such a good deal, complimenting the CEO that did the deal through me as an advisor, or basically just saying that that they thought that was a very strong deal. But the marketplace wouldn't have really digested it properly, sometimes for days or weeks, not to be disrespectful to shareholders. Sometimes they get it right right away, or maybe there's a mix. But sometimes there's certain deals that take a while to digest and figure it out. And sometimes the proxy takes a little while to be disclosed, et cetera. There are disconnects in the marketplace all the time these days. Different flavors of shareholders. And I think that's going to keep going. There's a chasm between the short-term and the long-term. And especially as the classic industries start to innovate and invest for the Long-term growth of what their industries need, and they're going to leave some shareholders behind and take some with them. That's going to create a void. How's it going to be filled? And what are those strategies are going to be the right ones or the wrong ones? And that goes back to which CEOs are going to be endorsed by the investor base, which ones are real operators, which ones are suitable acquirers of assets with a track record, which strategies will be generating return that the marketplace will say, you know, they have a track record. I want to. Get behind, just like a portfolio manager of a fund, you want to keep putting more capital behind. Which ones are they? And if they're not necessarily the big tech companies that are going to be the de facto buyers, what's the other level of operators that you're going to want to invest behind? You saw some of that pop up in the marketplace of 2021 with the retail investors saying, you know, there may be a different crop of companies that we want to invest behind than the ones that the institutional investors are getting behind all the time. And they're completely different. And that threw people for a loop. I think that also points out some of the holes and again, the kind of IPO process. What you're telling us to invest in, we may go a different direction. So I just think that has to be paid attention to a little bit. I think that the retail investor base, the institutional investor base, the short-term investor base, the long-term investor base, which CEOs you follow and the metrics around that are based on the strategies and the constituents that are around us. And I think all that chasm and all that uncertainty, again, the normalization of all that, is going to work itself through this year.
1: Right. On sectors and themes, one thing that really stood out in your letter was how much you had to say on crypto, <laughs> NFTs, Web 3.0. So I wanted to spend a little bit more time on these concepts, but starting with crypto. Crypto's been through fits and starts, so to say. Tree has certainly been following its development for a long time. In 2012, Tree hosted its first Bitcoin brainstorm, that was before I started here. Do you believe- That was 10 years ago. That was 10 years ago, yeah, the start of the firm. And here we are, still has had a a massive run last year. But do you feel that we're finally at that sustainable tipping point for crypto as more mainstream adoption ready? Or do you believe there are still important hurdles that need to be overcome ahead of that?
2: Definitely not mainstream, 100% no. And I definitely don't think all crypto is the same. It depends on the companies. It depends on the currency. Like Bitcoin you talked about, I think, has probably had its best days, in my opinion, because its utility is still very much unknown. And the trailblazer doesn't always get to the other side, which was Bitcoin. Whereas the digital currencies attached to industries and companies and countries, frankly, will have much more resonance and utility attached to them. But I think Bitcoin is way too much speculation around it. Jerusalem out on Ethereum and Solano and those cryptos. And there's obviously Yoshi and a bunch of Anymore others. Many more that
1: I can't pronounce.
2: Yes. <laughs> yeah, many more you can't pronounce. So I think it's not mainstream yet. But I think companies that have crypto, and I think crypto is an alternative to gold. And I think crypto is part of a portfolio 100% endorsed by us. We talked about accepting crypto from clients, not necessarily just having cash from clients which is another way of saying we're expanding our client
1: base. Well, on that point, I did want to ask you, has the client asked to pay in crypto yet? Yes. Or is that, okay.
2: Yes. But some of those are clients that we didn't have before also, which is, again, another way of saying that we're expanding our clientele. Our, the entrepreneurs that do business with Lion Tree continues to expand. So we want to see the different entrepreneurial businesses out there. And that criteria has a standard of quality, And that threshold is still the same, but we want to see the entrepreneurs of our generation and sustainable business models and ones that can get scale and ones that eventually can get to the public markets with scale and or be part of broader classic industries that can be attached to classic industries to get them to be innovative. So why can't retailers or entertainment companies have as part of their offering tokens or cryptos but it has to be tied to a stream of revenue or a stream of goods like frequent flyer miles were some utility attached to them it has to be grounded in something i think some of the cryptocurrencies were like someone reminded me the other day like the old zero coupon perpetual preferred bonds which were as interest rates rise the very top and most speculative part of a capital structure that has no grounding to them you have to be tied to something and some asset mix based somewhere. Otherwise, it's just a hype machine. And a hype machine on television is even worse. You can't give airtime to that much longer and responsibly, I would say. You have to be grounded to an industry and a revenue stream and an asset base responsibly. And I think that's where the normalization part comes in.
1: NFT investment and prices have also been on fire in 2021, which capped off the year with PAX, the merge, which was bought for $92 million by almost 30,000 investors. I believe you yourself have bought NFTs. So um, we'd love to hear a bit about what you've invested in.
2: Yeah. You asked me at the beginning about my break and if I enjoyed any downtime on a break. NFTs are great. We have to create a new title for these things because NFTs stand for what?
1: Non-fungible tokens. Yeah.
2: What I was saying on vacation is the more people bring up NFTs, I say, not fucking today. (laughs) 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 Trademark that. We're going to just do unique digital assets or something like that. Okay. Because it's like mistitled at this point, given how mainstream the conversations are all the time. Yeah. I love NFTs. I love the concept of unique digital assets. But I think it has to come with capital formation that takes away from just the assignment of an asset to a piece of art or an individual. And then it's the marketplaces and it's the portfolio construction around it. Like, for example, if there's a piece of art that is an NFT, but then instead of having one piece of art, but it's a portfolio of art, then it becomes potentially an ETF and that could be listed. And all of a sudden, you have different pools of assets that are more interesting. Or if it's an individual NFT, let's say it's an NFT of Kevin Hart. Can you then create a talent agency of NFTs? And if you have a talent agency of NFTs, can you do the Robin Hood of that talent agency? Then all of a sudden you have a stock market of trading on income streams of the culture of our time and the likenesses of the people that you follow out there. And you have then a stock market of people versus companies. And then you have different formations of capital and assets. And then can you create studios? And can you create gaming companies in different ways around those things? There are different ways to reorient an economy around these unique digital assets, but I think it can't be just about one individual asset and stop there. Or do we eventually elect a politician based on a unique digital asset with the most amount of votes with the highest amount of value, not just votes? Because really the two metrics of politics are money and votes, but we don't know where the money goes. So I think there's a lot of different interesting ways to think about these unique digital assets that haven't been really thought through. They're still very early stages, but it starts in entertainment, starts in retail and fashion and culture. Eventually, it'll make its way to banking and healthcare and other areas. But right now, it's solidly in the creative industries, which is really, really exciting. I do own, yeah, the Bored Apes, the CryptoPunks. Probably been more heavily weighed towards the Bored Apes, but recently, given there's been some trading disparities, I've moved into the CryptoPunks as well. And we have like a shared photo file with some people in the firm that are interested. And I actually share a photo file of the different ones that I've purchased so they can see when I add something to the portfolio and my cost basis. Have uh, you sold any? Take no, product. no, no. I haven't sold any because that would solidly put me in the older camp once I sell. But if I own them and keep them alive, I stay young and interesting to people. It's my identity. I can't sell them. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Following up a little bit on your comments about regulation, you know, this is an area, obviously, that has yet to be regulated. How do you see that developing? Or do you think next year or a few years subsequent to that we will have more progress in the form of regulating the industry?
2: Yeah. I mean, even Gary Gensler, who runs the SEC, he kind of even said, I think, that he allows for some experimentation and innovation to be had to test the envelope, which I think is Smart, of course. Like anything, is going to be regulation as it gets closer to capital formation and markets, for sure. But right now, we haven't even seen the full business plans yet, and the companies that have any sort of materiality to them. So I think before we get to any kind of securities regulation or listings, I think yeah, it's just be allowed early, to
1: grow. Too early to say regulation. Yeah.
2: I think it's important for regulators to use existing parameters to allow for innovators and entrepreneurs to run inside of versus stifling innovation too early with new regulation. So for example, if you have an existing framework for regulation for securities markets and you have existing regulation for the communications industry and you have almost an existing regulatory environment now that is long overdue for the internet and speech around the internet governed by the platform players with some increased pressure now from the government and obviously some collaboration there in some cases. Don't then go into creating new forms of regulation in a minute area to solve for things that have some moral hazards down the road. Let's allow for some seasoning first, in my mind. In some cases, regulation is too fast a buzzword where some collaboration and some conversation is better. And I allude to that in the letter a little bit. I think if Facebook and the internet companies worked with the government earlier on in some conversations and frameworks and some understandings, there wouldn't be so much of a feeling of being left behind. And I think the consternation would be less so. And I think if there was some self-regulation among the internet companies as well, we wouldn't be in these positions, which I think would have been more appropriate. I'm opposed to some uh, of, of the sort of minutiae regulation in these areas until there's some real business plans and scalable assets formed, which we haven't seen yet. Right.
1: One obvious area that's seen structural acceleration has been the traditional media space, pivoting at rates not seen before. And content still has remained king, IP wars, demand for differentiated content, et cetera. Liontree has been fortunate enough to be at the, the center of a lot of recent consolidation with traditional media but would you say that most of that has already taken place or should we expect to see more traditional media consolidation over the next few years?
2: I think that the pressures that exist for the traditional media companies on the pathway towards innovation and direct-to-consumer will lead to another round of consolidation, yes. I also think that there's no rigid endpoint where all of a sudden there's like a North Star to say, we've arrived, and now we're at the optimal state of play for media. Since I've been following it for now over 25 years, it is a moving target. And frankly, one set of transactions and movement of assets unlocks another series of transactions. So even since we announced the Discovery Warner merger, the state of play has shifted. Even since then, Netflix started talking about getting involved in gaming. Even then, you've seen some movement in the content and streaming competitive dynamics even since then. What I think you really need to get to is scalable international platforms, not just domestic, that has content that resonates, not just here today and then out of the ecosystem or mindset tomorrow. (laughs) Meaning the resonance of the content has to sustain. Otherwise, the spending doesn't return. So if you spend you know, $30, $40 billion a year in content, but people don't remember what the content was a week or two later, what have you really spent money on? It's a way of saying the churn has to stay low, platform to platform. And the content spent has to be content well spent. And then you have to have a real debate about whether the studios that are owned by those platform players are providing content only for their own streaming platform or they're an arms dealer to others or some hybrid model? Because we got to the point where each studio was providing content only for their own platform. But then that goes back to the question of scale. Are you big enough to do that? Or is that too costly of a model? And do you need more scale for that? And so I don't think we've seen the final endgame there. And then are these all virtual models? And do you have to have some measure of, or mix of, events. In addition, physical events and streaming content and direct-to-consumer and globally. So I think we have a few more rounds of this.
1: And you mentioned Netflix is moving to gaming. Do you think this is sort of the next version of the streaming wars where other streaming players are now going to similarly add different forms of content to their platforms in order to differentiate?
2: I think so. It all goes back to that churn comment. The video content business is expensive. The alternative to that is having some money spent on video content, some money spent on gaming, and some other areas of spend, events, transactions, like betting, other things. So you have a choice to make. Do you want to be known for only video content, globally, let's say, or a mix of product, And I think you will have to mix and match sports, news, local, global. The one that has the best brand that offers the most product will win globally, which means to say, will suffer the least amount of churn and keep their consumers with the highest retention rates and therefore have to spend the least amount of money to retain them. Right now, you have too many streaming platforms spending so much money on their own platforms, which has a high level of churn. And there's not enough scale to sustain that right now. Therefore, you need either more product or more consolidation to do that. Or you're a target to the broader platforms, if you're allowed by the regulators to do that. Or you have to merge with each other, or collaborate. God forbid you have to collaborate. <laughs>
1: <Right>. <laughs> Another area that's seen high level of consolidation or started to is the video gaming sector in general. I mean, landmark transaction with Take Two and Zynga, you know, largest deal in interactive en- entertainment. What do you think the domino effect of that transaction will be?
2: Well, it's the transactions that we're obviously advising on, on the Take-Two side. And, and I have to give Nick Tuastu and Frankie and our whole director of entertainment team credit. It's a strong franchise. For us at Liontree, it permeates itself through more than just the advisory side, but also the mobile gaming investing side of the business through our Griffin partnership with Peter Levin and Phil Sanderson, and also the IPO advisory side we're very active. So it's been a real strong part of the team all the way through. And I think it's a consolidation wave that will continue. And I think it's also a very strong part of the blockchain change and decentralized part of the asset mix and media is, is gaming. Mobile gaming was a very strong complement to Take-Two and their asset mix. I don't want to go too much into the details of the transaction since it's a public deal, but I, I do think there'll be a follow-on series of consolidation and would have predicted that anyway, in terms of gaming, being a very strong part of the unlock of 2022 as a key area of focus, as well as e-commerce and other areas. But I do think that there are a bunch of follow-on transactions that will happen. And I do think that Take-Two will be one of the leaders of the industry for a long period of time. And Strauss Zelnick is a CEO and a chairman that we hold a very high regard. Mm
1: -hmm. Another area that's been under the spotlight during the pandemic has been connectivity, which clearly is critical and essential. And 5G further enhances the capacity and speeds. But there's been a lot of investor concern about the convergence apocalypse. That notion of wireless is competing now aggressively against cable with fiber and fixed wireless solutions. And cable is competing aggressively with wireless offering as well. So do you view this as a key risk that will end up destroying value for all participants Or will management teams remain rational? I mean, it's a little bit of a game theory seems is playing out here.
2: Jessica Rosenworcel, who runs the FCC now, I've known for a long time, I think said that broadband is no longer a luxury, it's a necessity, which I subscribe to as well, but it is a high margin product. So I think this is sort of an avenue to getting access to everybody in the U.S. But there are other ways to get there in terms of fiber and infrastructure as well as 5G. I think for cable, it's not as much of a risk factor. I think it's an opportunity because wireless is an incremental product for cable, sort of an add-on service on a very strong broadband footprint. I'd say you know, video, less of a emphasis for the cable business as much as broadband. And I think wireless will be an increasingly big focus for cable. But as an add-on product, so I think they're the competitor, not the one that is going to be at risk. I think from a fiber and uh, infrastructure perspective, that will be a competitive dynamic for everybody. But I think it has to solve areas that are not tackled yet as well, which is a huge opportunity to reduce the broadband divide and eliminate it all to- altogether, which has some subsidies and different opportunities attached to it. But I think that's going to be a big focus, given how plentiful the availability of capital is today. To solve that and how supportive the FCC and the overall infrastructure and the government is in spending right now around this area, given what's been going on with AT&T and Verizon and unlocking non-core assets, it's going to be a huge area of focus for them to provide that access. So I think the ultimate winner there is obviously the consumer to have that. But I'm a big fan of the infrastructure providers right now, including cable. I think some of the broadband metrics for these companies were probably... Pulled forward and very highly stated during 2021 because of the crisis and directing everyone working from home. But I'm a long-term bull on these companies because I do think that broadband and having more players will just improve these services and offerings in the U.S. And I, don't, I still don't think that this country has seen its full potential of broadband yet, which is unlike most countries in the world. And the U.S. should be the leader. So I'm a big believer in all these services still seeing growth.
1: And on the topic of wireless. You also wrote in this year's letter that, quote, in order to fully exploit the possibilities of 5G, we might need a new phone. Yeah. So that statement popped out a bit for yeah. me. What do you mean by that?
2: Well, I mean, obviously Apple and Google dominating the mobile phone device landscape over the last 10 plus years, 15 plus years, has been uh, something that we are all been accustomed to, an Android and iPhone. I always have been saying in this podcast and probably others, that one of the interesting kind of business movements is that when I grew up, it was buying a Verizon phone. In those cases, it was like a Bell Atlantic phone or a 9 phone. Or you're buying an AT&T phone. Now they've ceded control of the device to the technology companies. You buy an Android phone or an iPhone. That flip happened where you rarely see someone give up control of the device. And they did it because of design. Design and functionality took over for the network player and therefore the telephone companies became relegated to just being the network provider and that had massive implications for the telecom companies who now all traded five or six times ebitda and have not been able to get out of that rut for a very very long time as a result of it but yet in the last few years there has been very little innovation for all of us users of the iphone and the android phone maybe the camera has been the primary source of innovation okay so fine And the question is whether there's an opening for a new phone. And you saw a little bit of that at the end of last year with Facebook and WhatsApp talking about payments over WhatsApp and maybe a Facebook phone or a Meta phone or a WhatsApp driven phone. There's also a concept of a crypto phone or a payments phone or even just more simplified device that just has commerce, stock trading, and Things like functionality of payments and maybe give more power back to the network provider as a result of just having the basic functionality on your phone. That's an alternative, more of a payments-driven or even a metaverse-driven device as AR and commerce play more of a central role in the development of these technologies.
1: Be look, on the lookout for that new yeah. phone. The last subtopic or, or subsector, I want to spend a little bit of time on a sports. Um, you talk about, you know, sports sort of undergoing one of the most challenging and at the same time, one of the most exciting um, pivots. And, you know, it's fully embracing now the creativity of fans across technologies from streaming to live experiences, to betting, to collectibles. So how do companies that operate in the sports ecosystem really create and maximize long-term value with this back Yeah.
2: I think sports is in for a major rework. The only reason when you really boil it down that people tune in to the bundle of, let's say, cable on the video side is football, like sports. But it's not enough. At the same time, you have the regional sports networks, which have gone hyper-regional and are due to be reworked over the next 12 to 18 months. You have consumers of the new generation that are really into short-form content, the TikTok generation, the short-form YouTube generation, I should say, to create some parody with TikTok because I think it's short-form YouTube has really picked up steam there too. Yeah, highlights. So people don't follow the full NBA season per se or the full Knicks or the Bucks, let's say, as the champions. They follow Giannis. They're the Greek freak. They'll follow the highlights of a game. And so that whole concept of how rights deals play around that has to maybe get reworked, which also picks up a transactional component to it. Do you bet? At what point in the game do you bet? And does that bring in not just the content and the fantasy sports of it all, but the gaming companies, not the gaming companies when I say gaming, like mobile gaming, like the take Twos of the world, but the gaming like the Caesars Entertainment's of the world or the bed MGMs of the world. There's different cross-sections that you can put together. We invested in Yahoo this year. There's Yahoo Finance and Yahoo Sports in there as well. And so you look at how you rework assets like Yahoo Sports or Yahoo Finance in those kind of areas as well that plays into this new world of betting and fantasy and sports rights, et cetera. There's a company called Buzzer that we invested in that basically alerts you at any moment in any game that you're watching When like the heat happens, when the moment that you actually may want to tune in, at a moment that you may want to transact, and that's the moment you have to watch. That's kind of another form of highlights. And so I think that doesn't mean that like the brand is not valuable, but in the ADD generation of the short form content, the I don't have time to watch every game. Now it's obviously different in the playoffs. Thankfully, the highlights take on more resonance than being able to watch every game at every minute all the time. And so how do you rework the rights deals around that? And I think it starts with baseball, starts with hockey, and then it gets to basketball. And then maybe, you know, some sort of global sports, the IPL and the rights deals are kind of outpacing the affiliate model that's afforded by the cable operators, also. So that has to get reworked. So I just think there's a lot of different reworking of the sports ecosystem providing for new models and new reworkings. That's seen a different day. And that's also where merchandising comes in. And obviously, fanatics and the tops deal is an interesting output of some of that new reworking of the ecosystem. And I think you'll see other deals around that as well.
1: What about media companies owning the entire sport as opposed to, quote unquote, renting or licensing the rights at Liberty Media, Formula One, Endeavor, UFC, even looking at Formula One and Netflix and what value they've created with Drive to Survive and the show. So do you think we're going to see more media companies follow this sports ownership model?
2: Yeah, but it depends the value of the sport. You have to get into the sport at an earlier stage and then help build the value together. If you're going to pay for the value of the whole sport when it's already encompassing all the rights, deals for embedded and encumbered contracts of deals in media that already exist, that doesn't work. It has to get kind of broken down first and restarted unless it's a greenfield. The world surf league is interesting. If there was like other sports that you can help build from scratch. I saw something now recently with Apple potentially getting into live sports with Major League Baseball. Amazon's a big player in this area. That's probably Jeff Blackburn's mandate at Amazon. it would be very interesting to see what they build. Very interesting to see how some tech platforms do it and some media platforms do it. And sometimes we'll be working together. But some of the commerce companies may do it as well from a merchandising or a betting perspective, like I said, or it's the Caesars or the other MGMs of the world or the content companies, whoever has an audience or a transaction attached to it could do it. Or maybe it's the streaming platforms. We'll see different ways to get at it. But I think there has to be a breakdown first. It's not all straight up. There's going to be some chaos around the sports ecosystem as well.
1: Right. And where there's chaos, there's opportunity. Yeah. There's
2: voluntary departures of your jobs, like I talked about in September, October, November. Antonio Brown. (laughs) leaves the middle of the field, the Bucks and the Jets, it's kind of like emblematic people voluntarily leave their job.
1: I think we're almost at the end of time and it's been a great discussion as usual. Thank you, REA. I thought we would end with something different this year, a fun lightning round, a little bit modeled after um, Mike Freeze's annual interview of John Malone at the Paley Conference. Five quick questions and I won't ask about your favorite book because there's a lot of detail on some book recommendations in your letter specifically, but number one, Favorite F1 driver, Max, Lewis, or someone else? Lewis. Favorite new music artist?
2: I would say I'm kind of a classic person. I like a lot of the old artists. I like Uzi.
1: Okay. Top of your list for TV shows to watch, assuming you have time to watch TV, but that's the question.
2: Paper and Glue was a great documentary I just watched on Hulu. It's an MSNBC documentary on Hulu about JR, the artist and photographer. It's just incredibly moving. Loved it.
1: Put it on my list. Favorite app on your phone, and you can't say voice or text.
2: Favorite app on my phone. I'd say
1: whoop. Nice. (laughs) 10 year treasury yield above or below 2% at year end 2022. Below. Last but not least, Bitcoin price at year end. And for reference, it closed at 46,000 at the end of 2021. 20,000. Okay. There you are. Thanks again. Great to see you. Really appreciate your time. really fun chat today.
2: Great, Leslie. I appreciate it. Next time I have to do Lightning Around you.
1: Oof. Get okay. your answers on right. the thing. <laughs> I'll prepare now for that.
0: Yeah. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed our show today. If you want to check out any prior episodes, find us and subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Feel free to leave a review as well as it helps people find the show. You can also follow us on social media at KindredCast for behind-the-scenes photos and info. Listen to KindredCast on SiriusXM every Saturday and Sunday at 2 p.m. Eastern, on Business Radio Channel 132, or stream shows on demand in the SiriusXM app.